Hello, everybody. Welcome to our virtual 67 Palmal. Uh, after this session, our own Federico Mocchia will be speaking with one of the pioneers of the Bulgari region, Michele Sata. Um, and for now, we're very pleased to welcome back Jasper Morris, MW, author of Inside Burgundy, who runs a website of the same name, who will be leading through six of the top producers in Merso. So please do chat away on the side, share us what you're drinking and where you're drinking it from. We hope it's all Merso. Um, and put your photos on social media with hashtag 67 from home. As usual, we'll have 15 minutes at the end to ask questions. Uh, big hello, big welcome to Jasper. There we go. Hey, how are you? Hello, can you hear me? I hope so. Good. Yeah. Very well, thank you, Ronan. The sun has been shining all day, uh, as it has most of the month, as it has most of the summer, ever since the confinement started. And we're back to good weather as well, so that's nice. Oh, good. Good, good, good. So I'm coming back to England tomorrow for the first time since February. Fantastic. Exciting. And my cricket team has uh, organised a match for Saturday, so I shall get a game of cricket in while I'm there. Good. Okay. Right. Okay. Well, thank you Anyway, to work. Yeah, to work, to work. So it's Merso tonight. Uh, my my favourite of the villages, of the white wine villages, um, I don't necessarily say it's the best, but it's the one that's motivated me right from the start of my career as a wine merchant uh, back in those early days in 1981. Uh, it should be a great tasting tonight because, I mean, any tasting that begins with costury as the entry-level wine has got to be a great start. So, um, Merso, why Merso? Why do I like it so much? Uh, I think it's perhaps to do with the fact that it doesn't have Grand Cru's, uh, though it has some very nice, <coughs> some very nice Premier Cru's, four of which we'll try. Um, really the focus on Merceau is how good the village wines are. Uh, and I think they outperform the village wines of the other top uh, appellations like uh, Chassain and Pilini Morishe. So greetings to you all from uh, wherever you're coming in. Do say where you are on the chat on the side as Ronan suggested. And uh, I'm, I'm in Burgundy, probably about um, 25 minutes uh, by car from Merceau. And uh, I'm ready to start the tasting. Maybe we should take a little look at the map to begin with. Brandon would put that up for me. Should be on its way to us. Um, while I'm waiting for the map, um, just a word or two on, on Mercer. I don't know how this name originated. It is a, a, a name from Roman times. And somebody came up with the theory that uh, it stood for Muris Sultus or mouse jump. But I can't begin to think why that should be uh, the case. Um, are you there? I'm you sorry, I'm having a bit of problem screen sharing from my laptop for some reason, but I will, yeah. I will be with you. Don't okay. Worry. Uh, right, no worries. Um, that will be with us any second now, and we can. Uh, we've got a little PowerPoint uh, with some maps and even a few photographs this evening uh, to show you some of the producers. So um, anyway, Merso was the first village that I tasted in um, when I made my initial trip as uh, my own small importing company late in the year in 1981. And my very first two visits were to the first two producers we've got on tonight's schedule which were uh, Jean-Francois Costurie and uh, Domaine de Comte Lafont, then in the person of René Lafont, but I also tasted with his, his son, Dominique. Aha, now we have Merceau to play with, that's great. So here is the map, which I'm now going to take control of and play around with. Okay, so um, Merceau left to right is from south to north and we are going to begin then at uh, the southern end, look at this uh, line of um, green, the darker green vineyards there, which are the Premier Cruise. And you also have Premier Cruise over here on the edge of Volnay and, and some up here, which are actually Merceau Blenny. Um, but for most people, the Premier Cruise are this first section that I drew that triangle sitting on its side, and in particular, the uh, the real specialist ones, the, the ones that most people take as the first division Premier Cruise are just three, uh, Perrier, Genevrier, and Charm. So we'll have those three, and we're also going to have uh, Boucher as well as representative of the group of Boucher, Goutte d'Or, and Porizot. 
Okay, but to begin with, we're going to take a look at, first of all, a village wine without any vineyard designation. And then after that, we will take a look at uh, a village wine, which does come from a specified and in fact, a monopole vineyard. We have not got every single one of the top Burgundy producers to find anything from Arnaud at, uh, at a price that, uh, that made sense and in enough volume to be able to supply proved not to be possible. So I'd have him up there. Uh, and there are one or two others, uh, Charles Ballot, Ballot Mio, I think can be considered in the top half dozen. But basically we've got three of the, uh, the superstar names in uh, Costury, Lafont and Rouleau, have been for a while. And then three other excellent producers in Antoine Gerbard, um, then in Domaine Albert Griveau, uh, Michel Bardet is the man in charge. And one from outside is Pierre-Yves Colin Moray, since so many people think he's, as do I, think he's one of the great white burgundy producers of the moment, but he's the only one who's outside the village of Merced. Okay, let's kick off then with um, uh, Mr. Kosturi. And uh, I do remember that first visit. I met him in whatever old premises, it's not the house he now lives in. Uh, and we went around the village in a beaten up old um, 2CV because uh, he had various different cellars belonging to different family members scattered around the village. And we had to taste a couple of wines in one of them and then go on to the next one. And uh, I just wish that I'd had more budget and could have bought from both his wines and Lafon's wines. But at that point, I decided it made more sense just to, to stick to one producer. And Jean-Francois Costure has never really forgiven me uh, since that time. Uh, his son, Raphael, was gonna give um, us an allocation much later on, but uh, Jean-Francois overheard the conversation and said, no, he turned me down in 1981. He doesn't get any now. Apologies if you've heard that story before, because I have uh, told it a few times. So um, what I don't have in front of me is the bottle. And occasionally there's a little uh, letter handwritten on it, which indicates which of the vineyards it may come from. Uh, but otherwise, he, um, he just bottles um, a straight Merceau, even though he has made wines separately from uh, different Yerdes scattered around the place. Uh, and each importer probably knows what he's got, but as I don't know exactly um, where this one came from, I can't, I can't tell you. But uh, just to give an indication, some of the vineyards which he's got are, he has uh, Chaume, he's got uh, Narvo, not sure exactly where in Narbo, and he has Viroy. Um, and then also he used to make a Castet, which was kept separate, and uh, also Rougeau kept separate. Uh, but those last two uh, weren't in the, in the blend of the village wine, or rather the separate versions of the village wine. <coughs> Why is Costury such an incredibly um, famous name and sells for otherworldly prices? unless you're fortunate enough to find some in a restaurant in France that's got it from the domain at a fair price and has passed that on. But in the secondary market, the prices have become stratospheric. And people want to know, it must be this technique, it must be that technique. But actually, in all honesty, uh, I don't think it is. Um, I think it is much more a question of him just having naturally green fingers. Every single decision is very carefully thought out. Of course, now it's his son, Raphael, uh, Jean-Francois is still around, but by the time that we had um, this one, this is the 2010, which would have been the last vintage when, uh, before the official retirement age of Jean-Francois, he would certainly have, uh, have gone on uh, pretty much full-time for a while after that, and he's still to be seen around. Um, two things which I think are important in the technique, that until very recently, they have maintained their old-style hydraulic press and they crush the grapes beforehand. Now, most people these days don't like that as a system because they think it obstructs purity. It triture, uh, as they say in French, uh, the grapes, and it meshes up the skins a bit. But I am a firm believer that high quality uh, Burgundy does actually, uh, white Burgundy does actually require an element of the skins. And uh, frankly, I'm a, I'm a fan of this crushing. We'll talk about it again when we come to the ruler wine because he's given me some information as to why he believes it to be a good technique. And there's old-fashioned hydraulic presses as well. 
what it does mean is that wines have got a more phenolic character when they're very young, um, and which can make them a little bit more awkward. In the case of Grosterie, they carry this reduction as well. The wines spend uh, two years uh, in barrel before being bottled uh, barrel by barrel, the spring and a half after the, after the vintage. Um, and that's very much the characteristic. There's never too much new oak. They certainly never taste over oak to me, despite having that second winter uh, in barrel. Um, and the wine we've got uh, today, I hope those of you who are, who are tasting uh, from the selection, is the 2010. So I am going to have a little taste of that. I hope you've been telling me, uh, uh, I'm just having a little look now on the chat, what else you're drinking if, for example, you don't have the, the, the set of wines, but it must be very tempting to pick up the set when you get a costury in there. So um, this, in fact, I believe came from the um, former importer, one of the importers of costury in the UK, uh, which is Domain Direct. Hmm. My samples took a little bit longer than usual to come here. Uh, I don't think they got too hot, so I'm hoping for the best as we taste them. This has got a very uh, clear, um, bright, mid-yellow color by now. Uh, it's 10 years on from a vintage that had a certain amount of color in the first place, uh, influenced by the big storm that was on the eve of the harvest, um, which really affected a bit further south than here. It affected chassin Maraschet much worse than it did Merceau. By the time you get to Merceau, there's a tiny effect. And it introduced a small amount of rot in the vineyards, but um, some of the grapes even went a, a weird blue color immediately after the storm. Fortunately, the weather thereafter was very dry and clear with a good um, north wind came through. And as a result, everything dried out. You didn't get any galloping rot over the next few days. And as long as people didn't panic, a few people did panic and, and picked too quickly. Apart from that, um, then uh, it was actually um, stayed stable and it just, affects a little bit the aromatics. Not too much on this. This is almost getting a little bit nutty um, rather than... Mm. Apologies for the slurpy, the slurpy noises as I taste. That's a beautifully full-bodied Merceau. So I say it's gone a little bit nutty, and that's what the old-style French sommeliers used to love about Merceau. We talk about the hazelnut and the butter. It's not too buttery yet, but that may still come in a little bit later on. It's retained good acidity behind, and that's absolutely characteristic of, of great white burgundy makers and uh, Jean-Francois and Raphael Costurie, absolutely, as well. So it's got that little thread of a mineral style of acidity, not, not a thin and tart style, but something that blends in with the fruit beautifully. And the persistence of flavour is really first class for uh, what is just a village wine, literally from the master. Nowadays, uh, apart from the occasional Burgundy restaurant, I have to go and visit my collector friends in Hong Kong who managed to get hold of some mature uh, vintages of costurie and the wines stay absolutely uh, beautifully fine well into their second decade. So this has just completed its first, about to start the second, and despite, as I say, perhaps getting a tiny bit warm in the transport, uh, that bottle's in very good condition. Hmm. Good, good. Right, D don't forget to uh, send your questions through. You can mention things on the chat, or equally, uh, you, can, you can do it by um, uh, hitting up the Q&A button, and where I can, I'll answer those as we go along. But uh, if not, I will answer the questions at the end. All right. I'd just like to tell Mr. Carrington that even though he's got a busy weekend, there is a, no possible excuse for a, 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 a dry, or you had a busy weekend perhaps, a dry evening, not when you could be drinking Mercer. Never mind. All right. Well, our other village wine comes from Mr. Dominique Lafont of Domaine des Comtes Lafont. And uh, I've opened it up, I should pour that into a glass. And it's the home vineyard, Claude Labar, where his mum and his late dad lived and where Dominique would have been brought up. 
Um, so let's just, I don't know if I scribble again. Get my stars going. Here is Claude Labar. No, sorry, I didn't take control. Claude Labar. So it's almost in the village itself on one of the roads that, that runs up uh, one side of the village, main through road, in fact, from top of the hill down to the bottom. And uh, it's a house that was built in 1869 when the domain was founded. And there are several other houses, the main prior as well. It's got the same general architecture. Uh, there was clearly a bit of expansion going on. And it belonged to a family called Boch, B-O-C-H. And in, uh, I think, 1891, Mademoiselle Boch married um, the Count Jules Lafont. And she wasn't the Count then. He only became the Count in 1905. Uh, and he's a Count of the Holy Roman Empire. He got the title because he opposed um, uh, contraception in some form or other. Uh, don't know all the details, but uh, it means that the males of his family ever since have been allowed to refer to themselves, if they wish, as uh, Comte Lafont. So uh, Claude Labar is the back garden of their house. It's just over two hectares, and that's a nice size for a vineyard. And when it's that big also, it means that they can replant in stages. So it tends to be one third youngish, and when they're very young, they don't go into the main wine, they go into a, a generic masso. Uh, one third getting old to middle aged, uh, as it might be, one third 20 year old, one third 40, and one third 17. So I think approximately where we are at the moment. Um, it's surrounded by quite high uh, local stone walls, which has the very good effect of warming up the vineyard in the spring. Uh, so it's one of the first to flower, but um, where it is, is not a, an especially hot site. It's not in the open, um, sort of east facing. Um, hillside, it's much more on flatter ground, so it doesn't get quite so hot during the summer and as a result it ripens a bit later. So it has a longer hang time and it's a wine that always has a real core of, um, of fresh minerality, even in the warm years. I think we looked at 2015 on uh, an earlier more general zoom, uh, maybe the one when we had Léa Lafont, Dominique's daughter, who with her cousin Pierre are taking over fairly soon. Dominique is still very much in charge, but the next generation have been introduced. And this is the Claude Labar 2014. So now current thinking is that it's probably the best white only vintage of the decade. Uh, a little bit of color here. Um, and uh, a very fresh nose, a bit of reduction. This is the second year that uh, Dominique Lafont switched from normal corks to uh, using the Diam version. And in the first year, and perhaps also the second year, he didn't reduce the sulfur levels of the bottling. So that means that uh, it went into bottle with, with a fair amount of sulfur, and that is what is giving us this level of reduction, I suspect, in the wine. The wines have changed here since his father's day, because his father would keep them a good two years and sometimes more uh, in barrel before bottling. Um, not a lot of new wood, probably none for this village wine. Um, and Dominique now gives them the first year in, uh, in their barrel, racks them out, but back into um, older barrels, even though there was none new, but probably the more recent barrels get removed after the first year. And they then spend between six and 10 months, depending on the vintage, um, in, uh, uh, in, in the barrels in the upstairs cellar. And then they get put into tank before bottling. Very youthful, this strikes me, despite the, uh, the colour is, is at least as, as, uh, is very similar to the Costurie 2010, but the bouquet is very youthful. Mm. As Paul mentions on the chat, this 14 definitely has more zip, higher acidity. I've mentioned elsewhere that 2014, the reason it was successful was it wasn't too warm during September and everybody had a wider picking window than has typically been the case in most recent vintages. And as a result of that, nobody left them on the, the grapes on the vine for too long. This has really got a, a beautiful finish again, just like the costury. Uh, it's got the energy, it's got the length and, uh, and that freshness of feel at the end. So uh, if I had any of this, and I do, um, I'm personally not going to drink this for probably another four or five years. Um, I'm still drinking the uh, 2002, I think I've got on the run, and 2004 at the moment of this wine. 
in my home Salah. Anyway, uh, it is a domain that's had the occasional flirt with uh, the parameter oxidation. Um, even though I did a, a vertical tasting of the mass station every year quite recently, and the vintages which had been sometimes oxidized to come out much fresher, and some of the more recent vintages um, in the late part of the 2000s uh, were, were flirting, as I say, with oxidation. But since the move to Diam in 2013, that really shouldn't be an issue at all. Great. Um, hmm. Someone has just asked about um, uh, the Bourgogne Blanc from Dominique Lafont. Uh, that's his own private label, his own vineyard, mind you, not a negociant. Uh, and uh, you mentioned, Paul, that you found it inconsistent. Uh, I haven't, though. Uh, it, it's been a, a favourite of mine. Uh, but um, you know, I, uh, I can't speak for uh, how it's worked out all the time. But when I've had it, I, I've really enjoyed it. Okay, so that's our two um, uh, village rhymes. And now uh, we're going to move on to um, the first of our Premier Cruise. I can't get rid of that. Have the map back. While we're waiting for the map, I will introduce the wine. Where's it got to? Here it is, the Bouchard. So this is Dominique Lafon's very good friend. Um, Jean-Marc Rouleau, and he's actually a cousin of the Cocheries because Jean-Francois Coche's father, Georges Coche, uh, had a sister called Marthe, and Marthe had a daughter called Geneviève, and Geneviève married Guy Rouleau, the uh, father of Jean-Marc. So it all hangs together in some form or other in Burgundy. It's, uh, only the Lafons have, have resisted marrying locally until Dominique himself uh, did marry a girl from Chambon-Musny. Right, so let me show you the Boucher vineyard, and in particular, uh, I'd better do it with my line. So Boucher is, is here, but I'm going to draw that blob is pretty much where the Claudet Boucher is. So um, I'll, I'll remove that again if you've seen it but you can see that the boundary line between Boucher and Porizot jags upwards, and the Claudio Boucher is either side of uh, where it jags upwards. Um, and what happened was that for years, Jean-Marc Rouleau had a bit of Boucher, but he and Lafon between them split up a domain called um, René Emmanuel um, with the American investors. They purchased the domain, and that included the Claudio Boucher. So the deal that they agreed was that um, Jean-Marc would take the whole of the Claudet Boucher and he would retrocede um, his original holding of Boucher to Lafont. Now what's interesting about this particular vineyard is probably the most elegant, uh, not a word you all that often use for Masso, of this bunch of Premier Cruz along here. Ginevra is really fine-boned as well. Um, Porozo is a little bit more uh, four-square and uh, Goutte d'Or is, is quite exuberant. Um, but Boucher is a wine of real stylishness, real um, elegance, and it needs to be picked early, otherwise you lose that and it becomes a little bit clumsy and the sugar levels rise uh, too fast, too quickly. Get some in my glass. So, to use an expression I rather like, um, Jean-Marc Rouleau has been like a cat with two tails uh, ever since he got hold of this Claudia Boucher. Um, it really is one of his, uh, his flagship wines, along with his famous village, Merceau Tesson, and of course, a little bit of Merceau Perrier that he has. Uh, Jean-Marc uh, didn't take over immediately from his father, uh, Guy Rouleau. Um, you can get brownie points on the chat if you can name the two other winemakers between Guy Rouleau and uh, Jean-Marc Rouleau, so uh, uh, from 79 through to 89. Um, and if not, I will tell you in a second. Uh, but Jean-Marc really wanted to be an actor and still manages to do a certain amount of acting. There's a little two-man playlet uh, called Les Luchés, uh, reference to one of his vineyards. And uh, uh, the other thing is a film that came out recently um, called Ce qui nous lit in French, or I think Back to Burgundy in English. It has him in a, in a, in a minor part um, as the sort of old family retainer 
uh, assistant winemaker, if you like. But clearly, throughout that film, it's it's very, very much his influence, and there are all sorts of little sly digs and subtle laughs at, uh, at one or two things that have happened over the years. And uh, uh, his sister gets a Alix uh, gets a little walk-on part as well. Uh, it, it's actually a really good film, well worth seeing. And what's unusual about films in wine country is it doesn't annoy a professional by sort of getting it wrong or dumbing it down. Almost everything is really very good. Right, let's just see. I'm going to have a little look at the, at the, at the chat. Um, and we're getting a lot of enthusiasm for both the Lafont and the, and the Boucher. Absolutely. Anyone happen to know who the two other winemakers were after um, the departure, the early death of um, Guy Rouleau? The first was um, an American, Ted Lemon. Yes, thank you, Albert. Just got there. Uh, uh, perfect. Um, the chap who's now making wine in both California and New Zealand. Uh, really, really top man, top winemaker. Um, and then in succession to him was uh, a then youngster called Franck Grux, uh, whose mother uh, is, is, is a Rouleau, so they're all connected. And since then, since 89, Franck has been the winemaker at Olivier Le Fleur, just to uh, tie in all the strands of, of Burgundy. So here it is, and it's 2015, so a year in which uh, it was possible to make wines which are a little bit too hot and not quite uh, got right. So, um, so well done. Um, the chat. Well done, uh, Jean-Marc, for, for doing that. Now, by this point in his career, not originally, by this point in his career, he'd started taking the wines out of barrel after the first year and making them the second year. They stay, but on their lees in tank. And that, again, is a feature of something that can give this beneficial reduction. Because if you keep them on their lees in that um, uh, anaerobic space of uh, an inert stainless steel tank, then the lees do give off this little bit of smoky gun flint, flint flavor, flavor, sorry, uh, which is the what I'm now calling the beneficial reduction, as opposed to an ugly, rubbery, or very green type of reduction, which is a, uh, an aggressive sulfur compound and not good news. So Jean-Marc is very keen on crushing. Dominique Lafont is not, but I just had a conversation with him a couple of weeks ago, and he's actually going to take another look at it. Um, but he feels that if you crush uh, the grapes, you bring in some phenolic compounds, which he doesn't especially like, because he's really after purity. Um, but what Jean-Marc likes about it is that it tends to give a slightly greener color to the wine, which is great uh, in these days when people mistrust too much of the yellow. And uh, it also, um, he told me on one occasion that it uh, increases the overall acidity, but doesn't change the pH. But I need to talk to him again because the last note I had from him uh, said that the pH does change a little bit. So uh, whether it's the total acidity or the pH which moves, I'm not absolutely clear because I have two sets of notes which slightly contradict each other. So that's on my um, menu to talk to him next time. It also means that once you've crushed the grapes, you don't have to press quite as aggressively. So he says he can press up to 0.6 bars and he will then get um, uh, all the um, juice that he needs, 90% of the juice that he needs. Whereas you'd have to go over one bar if he, if he uh, were to uh, leave them um, uncrushed. So a couple of technical bits and pieces for you there. Well, very complex nose. Um, the richest wine of the three so far, uh, I would say. But it's got a vivacity to it. it it's, it's not showing um, too much of the warm summer because 2015, of course, was one of those very warm years. Mm. Mm. That's very good. And wow, it starts very well. Then you get a little feeling of the warmth of the year. And then you suddenly get another burst of energy and the freshness at the finish. So the way that that wine kicks on in several different stages is definitely telling me that I would do better to keep it. But the joy of it now is such that if you like to drink your wines a bit younger, no reason not to. Um, I could have imagined drinking either the village Mercos on their own 
this clearly requires food with it. Um, you've got a wide range of foods. I'm, I'm not one of those who likes to find a very, very specific match between wine and food, but um, that's got so much energy and um, power in a good way uh, that it could match many a dish. It could, it could stand up to some richer sauces uh, as well. Mm. Just I'll tackle this question now, but Marius has said, what do I think about Claudio Zon from Arnaud I do think Arnaud is a wonderful winemaker. Um, he really goes for the chiseled uh, style. He's very much um, reduced any barrel component in his winemaking. And the Claudio Zon is one up from his regular. It's not the super old vines, but they're still the best part of 70 years, years old, the vines are going to Claudio Zon, and it is, it is a standout wine for me as well. Definitely in the in the top league, very hard to come by because it is a tiny domain in size. Great. Um, well, I'm really happy with that wine. Maso is living up to its reputation. Yeah. Good. Good. Keep the questions coming. Keep the quality coming on the chat. We'll try and keep the quality coming in the wine. So now Genevrier, Charme and Perrier. And when I was a, a young wine merchant, uh, it was almost always Charme, then Genevrier, then Perrier, because that was thought to be, in general, the quality uh, slope upwards. Um, nowadays, it's mostly Genevrier, Charme, Perrier, not because people have taken a different view on the quality, but it's more a question of style, because Genevrier is, well, the word I like to use about it is fine bone. It's got all sorts of little lacy detail to it. Um, mineral, if you will, but some people don't like us to use that word. Um, but it can be crushed between the richness and roundness of charm and the super weight of, of Perrier. So just stylistically, it's probably better if it comes before. So that's what we're gonna do now. Uh, and certainly at the main the Jobar, it's always been served for the Charm because they have quite a bit of Genevrier, just a very small amount of old vine Charm. So uh, let's just take a look where it is on the map. Oh, we got some pictures. So that's Dominique Lafont, and he's not in Masso in that particular picture. Uh, that's the harvest a couple of years ago of his Morichet grapes. And you can see now, in order to avoid wines getting too heavy, he now picks them one that's still more green than gold. But when I used to go and see him at the harvest 15, 20 years earlier, the grapes were definitely much more golden. Okay, next one, please. There is a blurry picture of Jean-Marc uh, Rouleau, hand gesticulating, trying to show where his vineyards are. He's got this lovely map in the cellar. Um, but that is very much Jean-Marc. And there is Antoine, the rugby man, Jeba. I don't know if he does play rugby, but he's certainly got the physique for it. Um, and uh, there he is um, uh, in his cellar, which he's uh, cleaned up, got rid of the cobwebs since uh, taking over from his father. Uh, it was a long, slow um, changeover. His father is still in excellent health and still to be seen around and doubtless out driving a tractor in the vineyards from time to time. Um, but uh, father's first vintage was, was my birth year, so, uh, so that's going back a bit. And uh, Antoine joined in from about 2002. Um, and then uh, they put both names on the label, Domaine uh, Francois and Antoine Jouba. And now it's just Antoine. And he's uh, uh, since 2007. And Antoine, in fact, had sole responsibility for vinifying from 2005. He's made a few changes. His father was one of the um, very uh, uh, long aging people, at least two years. Typically, he would bottle uh, just before the, the, the next harvest after that, the third harvest. Um, but sometimes he'd keep them even a little while longer. And uh, he would never settle out any of the solids. So these are powerful wines, um, really quite pungent in, in, in style. Um, probably used a little bit more sulfur than other people in uh, those days. And the early Jobar wines used to last an exceptionally long time. And they were marked in their youth by a, a, a slightly odd mentholated character, which you would also find at Domain Ramonet. And I'm led to believe that's because of a particular um, product that they used in order to find the wines, which gave off that slight um, aromatic uh, addition. 
but that would fade out over the years in bottle. So the father's vines um, go on forevermore. Yeah, absolutely, Miriam, spearmint, like. Um, now the son, Antoine, he's changed things a little bit. He bottles a bit earlier. So a cooler vintage with plenty of tension in the wine, you'll still keep for up to 21 months in barrel, 18 to 21 months, let's say. The warmer vintages, he will probably take after bar out of barrel after 12 months and then give them another six to nine months in tank. So for example, his 2015 was done that way. Just uh, check my crib sheet and see if we got a 2012 from uh, Antoine, oh, good. It's a vintage that uh, even despite the hail is one that I like very much indeed. Right, so I will show you where um, Genevra, uh, I'm sure you'll be familiar with, but I'm gonna show you exactly where his holding is um, on that. So uh, here is Genevra in total there. There's an upper part and a lower part, but unlike Charm, which we'll come to, is not really that much of a difference because it continues to be on the slope in the lower part. And Jobar's holding is just here. So it's in the lower part towards the southern end. It goes from that road down to that road. Um, so um, let me just kill that for you. Um, and get some in my glass. Somebody has mentioned that their samples seem a little bit oxidized. I'm very sorry to hear that because that's not typical. And even though mine took three days rather than one day to get here, so far, and I haven't yet opened the, the last three, but so far they've all been clear and in good condition. Genevriere, the word is, uh, uh, Genevriere means a juniper, juniper bush. And at the top left corner of uh, uh, the Genevriere vineyard, just here, they planted a little juniper bush and surrounded it in a very smart bit of dry stone walling. Um, and it's now expanded all over the place. But um, it's fanciful to think that you get a juniper flavor, I suspect, in the wine. So here there's a, there is a touch more evolution in, in, in this wine. The color is a little, little more yellow than I would expect. And the nose, so not oxidized, is a little bit thicker in, um, in what it's delivering and the fruit that it's delivering um, rather than fresher. But Swirl it around a bit, take a little taste. Mm. Still mostly the clear and crisp and exciting wine that I expected, but there's just a little bit of a softness and heaviness around the edge, which probably comes from the sample. We had a 2012 Masso uh, from Antoine, I forget which vineyard now, when I did a Masso masterclass physically um, at um, uh, 67 Palmar. And it, it was great. It went really, really well. And his wine was one of the stars. Um, but I don't remember exactly which wine uh, it was on that occasion. So, what I think um, the style I get from Jobar are quite muscular wines normally with good acidity, uh, and they keep very well. Um, just to give an indication of a classic um, Burgundy family story, uh, they also have the small holding of uh, Les Charmes, which um, the great-grandfather had uh, 16 ouvres in Burgundy speak, and the ouvre is 0.0428 of a hectare. And uh, so 16 ouvres out of 24, uh, so that means two thirds of a hectare. Uh, then there were two children of the great-grandfather and they got half each, so that takes it down to eight. Um, and then there were two children of the next generation, um, Charles Jobart and Francois, so that brought it down to four ouvres each. And though at the moment uh, uh, Antoine has all those four ouvres, it's possible that things are gonna get uh, split up uh, with a family succession because he has at least one sister, possibly more. Um, so who knows, that could get smaller or other vineyards might, might get separated out. But the good news for Antoine is that he's managed to buy a couple of um, more Merceau vineyards in the last year or so, and he's bought an entire domain in Pomar, uh, Domaine Musi. And um, 
I remember our old man, uh, Musi, when I first came to Burgundy in the 80s, he was still working, he should have been retired by then, uh, but uh, he really was uh, one of Burgundy's great characters and made some, some very nice wines. So whether or not uh, Antoine is going to keep the Musi name or put it all into Domaine Antoine Gervais, I haven't heard all the news yet, um, but that's uh, something to look forward to from the 2020 vintage. Not quite breaking news, I heard that at the end of last year. Um, somebody's asked about the family lines with Remy Jobar and Domaine uh, Jobar Moray. Domaine Jobar Moray, you have to go up two generations. So uh, Francois's father, his brother, was the ancestor through which line uh, it, um, uh, it's come down to Domaine um, uh, Moray Jobar. And then uh, Rémy Jobar is the son of Charles Jobar, who is the brother of François Jobar. So he's therefore first cousin of, um, uh, of uh, Antoine Jobar. And uh, they're also, well, the connections go all over the place. There are uh, the Moray family in the background uh, uh, more than once. Uh, Henri Germain, uh, there's, uh, there's a family relationship in there. Uh, there was a Jobard who was winemaker for Louis Latour for a while, and there's also Laurence Jobard, who I think might not be a direct um, relation, who was the enologist at, um, uh, with Drouin for a long time, and her daughter Claudie is now uh, also a winemaker with her own domain. So there are Jobards in, in and around Merceau, that's for sure. Okay. Pull that back. So, well, we've got this map here. Uh, there's a lovely little crossroads that um, uh, I take people to if I'm showing people around in Burgundy. Um, and I am just going to draw ourselves a line. It is, it's just here, this crossroads, boing, and there. And you can stand just above the crossroads and you've got if you're looking down the hill, you've got Perrier on your right, you've got Genevrier on your left and below, you've got Charme uh, also on your right but below. And uh, uh, from that, um, you really get the concept of what the, all the top Premier crews are like in Merceau. We talked about Genevrier, there being not that much difference between the upper bit and the lower bit. Uh, when we come to Charme, uh, there is much more of a difference. Um, here's Charme, all of it together apart from that little bit called Les Criaches. Uh, but in fact, there is a small fault line uh, which starts uh, with the road that comes through at the bottom of Genevrier. If you were to follow that across, across here, uh, there is a fault line which you can't see from above. You can see the land has flattened out, but you can't really tell there's a difference there. But instead of the rock being within a meter or so of uh, the, the top, uh, the rock falls away much lower down. And there is a difference qualitatively between what's above and what's below, for sure. And in Ginevra, it's only, it's only a very minor detail. Right, so um, the person we've chosen um, for Les Charmes, um, because I think he's a super winemaker, and it's interesting to see what somebody does with purchased grapes, um, is Pierre-Yves Colin Moray, known as PYCM to many of us. So uh, I think we may even have a little picture of him. Oh, my glass. oh there he is, smiling. Very much a Collin. If you, if you know um, Bruno Collin or, or Philippe Collin in particular, uh, you will see uh, very much the, the same features. And the Collins came from chassain Maraché and then disappeared to, uh, uh, at least one branch of them disappeared across to Saint-Aubin because his father, Marc Collin, married a girl from Saint-Aubin and was uh, very badly, very, um, not, yes, badly thought of uh, at the time. You're not supposed to marry on the other side of the main road. Um, so he decamped off to the little hamlet of Gamay on the edge of Saint-Aubin. And uh, Pierre worked in the family domain with his two brothers and one sister through to, I think, about 2005, if I've got the date right, uh, and then left them and set up his, his, his own business. Um, yeah, it was 2005. Um, which he took his share of the family vineyards with him, which mostly in Saint-Aubin and in Chassin, and he added to that um, uh, lots of negotiation contracts, usually with the same people each year, 
they're all it all comes under one label because he doesn't particularly want anybody to make a fuss about whether it's his vineyard or somebody else's and certainly it's not a domain where i can or not a producer where i can clearly see a difference you can't taste the wines and say well that's obviously not his own vineyard and uh, he's married to uh, caroline moray hence you know you've called moray uh, who is the daughter of um, uh, Jean-Marc Moret, and uh, she has her own domain in the same building. They use the same teams out in the vineyards and picking teams uh, for, for both lots. And indeed, they pick most of the grapes from where they are negotiants. Um, and uh, uh, the only difference is that uh, his wife specializes a little bit more in reds and Pierre is, is more in whites. But he was one of the first who really got known for this beneficial reductive character, almost seemed a little bit of a caricature, but he's an intelligent man and of his own volition, he's just started to rein that in a bit. Now, um, he, he's, he, in conversation with him, he suggests that, that he didn't really do it deliberately in the first place. And I haven't decided whether I go with that or whether I think he's being a tiny bit disingenuous, um, but certainly it's not something to um, exaggerate uh, too much. Right, okay. Let's take a little look at this wine. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely got that. It's got that little smoky and spicy reductive. Yeah, Michael says marriage on the other side of the road should make the line stronger. Absolutely, of course it should, but it's just not the dumb thing. People, academics have done studies about uh, marrying on one bank or the other of a small river or or in this case it was the old main road down from Paris superseded now by the auto route um, but uh, in the days when it was the main road maybe too dangerous to cross right I'm intrigued by this line it's really lovely um, so it's 2010 um, and um, so we're 10 years old it's got the extra weight of charm, a little bit of an uplift of not as strong as Botrytis, but, but uh, fractionally more exotic flavors coming into the nose there, a little bit of yellow fruit. The Mirabelle plums and then zoom. This lovely word in French, ciselet, which in English I would translate as chisel, um, which defines this style of winemaking. And then fighting against that, is the natural weight of charm as a vineyard. And it's not an ugly flight, uh, fight. They are they're very happy together, just doing slightly different things. So in the middle of the palette, I'm finding the weight of this um, rounded yellow fruit. Um, it doesn't go as far as peaches. It's not over the top by any means. And then it tails into this lovely refined and chiseled finish. Uh, so I'm, that's another wine I'm pretty happy with, uh, showing uh, every bit as well as I would hope for it to do. Um, yeah, so I don't know what you think, but this is going well. Um, and Camaras has said he's drinking the 2012 um, Narvo. Now, I don't know where their grapes are from. I can't tell you if it's from the upper part or the lower part, but it's certainly a wine that I, I really relish. Um, and in fact, when you taste uh, at Pierre Eves, the new wines, the new vintage, he would have done the Premier Cru Chassin Maraches, and then he comes to the Mercos afterwards. Uh, and uh, so you, you drop down to a village Merceau with the Nardo, and yet you feel that you're going upwards in quality. Uh, so it's a wine I like a lot. Um, Sandra wor worries about whether the vines closer to the road get pollution issues, and does this get tested? Uh, no, um, not doesn't get tested uh, as far as I know. I suppose uh, there must be a little bit of an issue, uh, uh, pollution, but uh, uh, the grapes are sealed um, uh, and the skins are not broken um, and uh, it shouldn't really be an, uh, an effect. I don't know if somebody's done a study on that, it would be interesting to know. Thank you for those questions and do keep more coming if you wish. Uh, somebody else has also asked how long this wine might be to keep. Well, I'm tasting it now, and though the character of the wine suggests to me that it's fully ready, 
There is nothing about it that says that it's not going to keep easily for at least another five years. And I'm not sure if he did at that period, um, whether or not, I think now he waxes the, uh, the bottles. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know if he did right back then. He probably did, but, uh, but it's certainly something he uses in order to try to preserve the wines as, as well as he can. Um, and as someone else just mentioned, he is a very, very consistent uh, winemaker. Um, a lovely phrase he said to me, which comes back into this nose and the cleanliness and chiseled nature of the finish. Uh, he says that um, he wants tension, but not anorexia in his wines. And I think he absolutely won that game. Um, he leaves all the solids in. He doesn't use small barrels. It's larger wood here. Uh, and he doesn't do any lees stirring. Of course, if you've kept the solids in, uh, that's giving you plenty of protection. And lee stirring was something that came in because it was a technique that could be useful in certain years. And uh, uh, then people thought it's something that they ought to do. And the more they could do it, the better they could do it. Uh, so Jan's got a 12 that was waxed. And Paul has got a Narvo 2010, which wasn't waxed, but is uh, not as full of energy and tension as, as the charm is. OK, interesting. And thank you all for sharing comments of what you're tasting alongside, because it gives me uh, something to look at and enjoy uh, hearing what you've got to say, rather than just my voice droning on all the time. Hmm. We have but one wine to go, and this is a wine with uh, uh, a, a lot of um, character to it. At least the person who makes it has got a lot of character. And I suspect that his wine is going to have. There is Michel Bardet uh, with, it looks like, almost looks like a, 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 an old fashioned sort of medieval sword, narrow one in his hand, but that's his pipette, the glasses. Uh, and he's uh, looking at, um, back towards us, and we were looking out to, um, this is actually quite interesting. Let's see what we can show you here. So this is his vineyard, which is on the far side of the house and winery. Uh, which the Bardet family have had since 1879. Um, and uh, when they bought the Claudio Perrier, they also bought some Merceau Charme, which subsequently uh, one member of the family then gave to the Hospice de Bohm, which is very nice of them. But the vineyard you see in front of them is the, their, their own clos of partly Merceau and partly just Bourgogne Blanc that they've been fighting to get upgraded to Merceau. In the background, if we look, if we look, if we look, let's just, Nine's going. Don't know if you can see up here, but there are lots in this vineyard here. You can see lots of very small buildings, um, little follies, and that is the Merceau Tesson, including the Claude de Montplaisir, as uh, Rouleau's wine used to be called. It's now Montplaisir Claude du Haut Tesson. Uh, and next door is the Rougeau vineyard, uh, which where Costurie has some vineyards. So uh, once again, everything is all tying in nicely together which we enjoy so much about Burgundy in general and maybe Merceau in particular. So uh, let me pour myself some of this wine. I was ambivalent, let's say, about, here we got the map. Um, let's, let's do the heart thing. So Merceau Perrier, I'll put the heart in place first of all for Claudio Perrier and then draw the borders all around it. So Perrier, there's an upper bit of Perrier and the lower bit, zap, looks like that. If anything, the lower bit is slightly better because you can see it doesn't go nearly as far down the hillside as Chenevriere or certainly not Charm. Um, but it's not that significant. And maybe with global warming, um, the difference is, is, is even less. Um, so, for example, Lafont has Perrier in both the Haut Perrier, which is part of the upper bit, and the bottom bit. Costurier is in the Haut Perrier upper bit. Uh, Bouchard Perifis is all in the um, Perrier dessus, the upper bit, and so on and so forth. But um, Michel Bardet is persuaded that the Claudio Perrier is the very best. He's got a hectare and a half of other bits of Perrier, uh, but he has just under a hectare, 0.95 of the Clos, and he tried to get it upgraded tried to submit a dossier to have it upgraded to Grand Cru, but unsurprisingly, perhaps, um, though he was surprised, the other growers in Mercer said, uh, no, we're not having your bit upgraded to Grand Cru, not the rest of it. And uh, 
uh, and so it didn't happen. Um, and that's probably right. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of the best Premier Cruise remaining as Premier Cruise, so you can say this is world-class Premier Crew rather than being possibly a contentious Grand Crew. If there were a candidate in Merceau Grand Crew, it clearly would be Perrier. And it does have the, um, or has had over the many, many years, the advantage that it is pretty consistent year in, year out, uh, which is what a Grand sh Crew should be. A Premier Crew might suffer if it's not the right style of year for where that Premier Crew is based, but a Grand Crew ought to be able to hit its straps uh, all the time. So, um, However, so it, it, it is the richest of them all, so it's got uh, the weight of charm, if you like, but in a slightly different character, even the bouquet is enormously concentrated. Yet it's got a lot of the minerality that comes out of Genevrier, so it really is the most complete of all the Mercedes. But I would say that during the period of um, premature oxidation, so from 96 through 99 into the first half and possibly the second half of the 2000s, and probably much less since. Um, during that period, I would find Merceau Perrier the most likely vineyard in Merceau to be suffering from it, as if the richness of flavor just sort of toppled over more easily into oxidation than, let's say, a more restrained Genevrier. Um, nothing scientific, nothing quantified there, but that's my impression. Okay, so let me pour the wine and taste it. Uh, tasting the wine very young in the cellars, I prefer the regular Perrier to the Clodé Perrier. And then it is only later on, with much more bottle age, that the um, Clodé Perrier really comes into its own. Which means that when you go there and taste, you can sort of say, please, can we try some older bottles so we can see what they're really up to? And I went there last summer with a, with a small group and uh, we had a few things back into uh, uh, the 1970s. But the vines aren't young, but they are younger than his holding of regular Perrier. And he doesn't keep the wines in barrel as long as the other people we've been uh, tasting. So he takes the wines out and bottles them just before the new vintage, um, which I personally, I would prefer the, the slightly longer. Um, Simon has found a bit of a rubber band hint on the nose. And yes, I absolutely, I, I, I do concur with that. Uh, no, that's a really good description. Um, I think it's a version of a form of reduction um, in this wine. Yeah, between a rubber band and something a little bit, almost a little bit more iodine, um, which is characteristic that um, uh, Michel Bade tells me that we find in the um, Côte de Perrier, but not in the regular Perrier. It's one of the things, if you know it's there and you look for it, then it's a positive. If it comes on you by surprise, and I think it's probably linked to this rubber band aspect that two Simons have now mentioned, um, then I think um, you, you slightly uh, question it. So, you know, it's a tiny bit of the, the, the menthol spearmint in there as well. It's not too aggressive. These are all little, little details in the flavoring. Mm. Really very significant power on the palate and the acidity is stronger at the back than the, the nose suggested it probably was going to be. So I'm going to suggest that the wine hasn't completely come together yet, but with age is going to turn into the special wine that this is meant to be. Mm. Guess what? In a minute or so, you're going to be asked for your two favorite wines, those of you who've tasted them, or those of you who, who, who want to make a, 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 a bid anyway. Yes, that wine really does need more time. So as always, the choice is for two different wines, and it's up to you whether you take your two best, or one that's your overall best, and one which is best against your expectations, or best in its category. However you want to vote. I'm not allowed to vote. Ronan's not allowed to vote. Here we are, Martina has kindly put them up. So um, 30 seconds or so for you to make your choice. It's a village costurier, Claude Labar Lafont, Claude Boucher from Rouleau, 
Shabbat Shalevriya, Pierre Yves Sham, Grivos Clodeperia. As always, I want to vote for at least four, if not six out of six, but even if I were allowed to vote, I wouldn't be allowed to do that. Okay, five, four, three, two, one. Time's up. We'll take the poll down. Martina will very skillfully put it straight up. Narrow victory for Costa but goodness me, look how well spread out that is. Um, and uh, I will now tell you that uh, my favorite wine overall was, uh, I'm probably going to go with Rouleau and Lafont, but I did like the Custerie very much. Um, and, oh no, I might kick out one of Rouleau and Lafont for Pierre-Yves colin Moray. Don't know, too difficult. Glad I didn't have to do it. Thank you for sharing that poll. Um, now, um, please, Miriam likes the result. Were they the ones you voted for, Miriam? Um, I will just have a look and see. I don't think we've got, uh, ah, yes. Do I have a favorite uh, Rouleau Deuxième crew or some not premier crew? Uh, it has to be the Tessel. That is such a special uh, vineyard. Uh, I like his Lucia. Ah, I like, frankly, I like uh, all his wines. He's somebody that's consistent up and down the range. Uh, he's such a thinking winemaker and there's such personality in his wines. Uh, but the Tesson, Mon Plaisir, Claude Duhou uh, Tesson is is nonetheless uh, ahead of all the others. And Rafi has confirmed that. Um, Lafont and Pierre-Yves Colin Moray. One of the problems with doing the voting is I know these people really quite well. And, uh, and I, I wonder if I'm either letting uh, that color my uh, thinking or indeed reacting the other way. And as you say, Rafi, a great uh, Bourgogne Blanc as well. So um, I, I tell you what, um, Martina, if you don't mind, could you create very rapidly another mini poll, just of three uh, options um, and only one vote allowed? But I'm going to ask everybody uh, listening in uh, tonight, uh, which is your favourite of the three villages? Chassagne Marachet, so Chassagne or Puligny or Merceau? Um, uh, make me a sign, Martina, if that's difficult to do at such short notice, but uh, I think that would be good fun. In the meantime, Jasper, maybe while Martina's preparing that, maybe you can tell us when we're going to see you again. What's um, uh, let me think. What's the date to today? I think it's the next one is the 23rd, when we have a fascinating tasting. Uh, it's only five wines, but they're all from the same village, all from the same vineyard, all from the same vintage. They're the 2017 Jury Chambertin Clos Saint-Jacques from the five producers. And, and that really will be absolutely fascinating because they've all got their rows running up and down the hill. So it is entirely their methodology that's going to make the difference between what they do. Um, so, yeah. Hmm. Um, but meanwhile, on the, well, maybe I'll wait for the poll before we have any last thoughts on, on Merceau. And if there are uh, questions from you, uh, please uh, add those in. Um, I've touched on a couple of other grows. We didn't have Arno Ant, we didn't have Bano Mio. Um, I think that Michelot is coming up in the world. Uh, Tessier also uh, doing some good things. The Chateau de Merceau is uh, really interesting. And they have a great wine in there. They have a very good Merceau Charme from the upper part. And, uh, and they have a Clos des Grands Charons. Uh, those would be my two favorite Merceaux, but they're really doing well now. Um, there is uh, Vincent Latour, also Latour Giro, which I don't know so well. Um, there's uh, all the Bouzereau family, <laughs> they're an enormous extended family. What I know best is Michel Bouzereau, but Vincent Bouzereau and Jean-Marie Bouzereau also to be taken seriously. Okie doke, there we go. You've got three to choose from. And Paul, I can't always distinguish Pudigny from Merceau, but you, normally you can. Pudigny is uh, lighter bodied, but with a great backbone and it's very floral and Merceau, it tends to be softer and rounder and a little bit deeper in flavor. So last chance, pick your favorite out of Chassagne, Pudigny and Merceau. Five, four, three, two, one. Die, kill the pole. And wait for the result. Merceau, good people. That's certainly my favorite. Then Pudigny, then Chassagne. Chassagne would do better if there wasn't too much white wine planted in the soils that should be red. Uh, Pudigny, of course, has got the wonders of the Grand Cru's, which are uh, unmatchable. Um, and some, the top Premier Cru's in Pudigny are absolute standouts. 
but uh, Merso, all the Premier Cruise, and then the Village Vines in Merso is, uh, yeah, and uh, Mark has noted the, uh, I could have put in Santa Bar, I decided not to, um, but uh, I do like Santa Bar very much indeed. Um, wonderful. So time for your last questions. And, uh, and I'll just continue also my, my list of good producers in Merso. Um, you have got um, uh, what was the main Michelot uh, Buisson, um, Buisson Charles, um, by Patrick Esser, uh, who's one of the slightly later pickers. Um, you've got, uh, oh dear, I'm going I'm to uh, forget some names. There's a youngster called uh, Sebastian Menia, who I think uh, is making some very nice wines. He doesn't have any Premier Cru Merseys. He's got a couple of different uh, village vineyards, uh, which are, which are, I, I, I are extremely good. Um, we've got uh, who else? Who else? Who else? Who else? Just, uh, scan the list so I don't uh, leave people out. Uh, oh, Domaine Jacques Prieur uh, should be taken into account uh, clearly. Um, there is uh, Bernard Boisson, uh, Boisson Vado, uh, who's got a, its own little cult following. Like I mentioned the Michelots. Um, uh, let me see. Uh, both the Jebars, the other Jebar as well. What I, uh, Henri Germain, um, one, of, one of the, um, uh, Patrick Chevillier, Jean Philippe Fichet, uh, so many, there must be 40 domains where you've got wine which is at the least reliable and frequently rather better than that, rather more, uh, more exciting. So, uh, there are a few names to play with. We've covered several of my uh, particular favourites uh, tonight. Pierre Moray, thank you, Jan. How could I forget Pierre? And that now it's his daughter Anne. How could I forget that? Looks as though we have a last question, which I shall now answer. Ah, uh, oh, yes. Heiko uh, has asked, "What are my thoughts on the main fichet? Great wine from him. He's very much in the slightly reductive, fresh, chiselled, not overtly opulent Mercos." but I love his single vineyard wines from Tesson, Chevalier, and Gruyache, which sits at the foot of Marseille Charme, and his particular vines there are planted in 1928, so they're, they're over 90 years old now, and they still made a bumper crop in 2018, so doing very well. Okay, I'd like to thank Martina behind the scenes. I'd like to thank Ronan, uh, who introduced me, and uh, has come in there at the end. I'd like to thank um, all of you, I'm just at the moment uh, preparing some uh, subjects to go for doing um, uh, during uh, August. We've got several ideas already in place. Uh, Aaron's just asked, could we do something for Pirini and Chassain? Unless I missed it. Uh, we, we did do a very brief comparison right at the start of the series before we were sending wines round. But uh, yeah, plenty more to talk about. We'll try and do an, uh, a couple of um, value for money ones so that loads of people will will buy the pack. So we might even take a look at Aligote uh, with six of the leaders of Aligote. Uh, I'd like to do something from Puy Fuisse because they're about to get their premier cruise and we'll certainly do some more top end ones as well. So Great. thank you very much, Jasper. I know okay. a people have asked to do um, straight Bourgogne. Who's okay. Name? Bourgogne. Yes. Yeah, oh. yeah. We can do that. Yes. Good, good. Uh, Arno says, enjoy your holiday. What holiday would that be? Apart from getting a game of cricket next Saturday, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you so much, everybody. Uh, bye. And go and enjoy my dinner. Uh, same for the rest of you. And I can see several of you are planning to open up some, some more bottles tonight. Well done, you. And we'll, and we'll meet again shortly. <laughs>